we're going to read the Bible together, and then we're going to uh, think about what the text says. So it's Ezekiel 38, if you want your Bibles there. Uh, and I'll just... One. So Ezekiel 38, 1 to 16 is the passage. Uh, We've been travelling in this book for a little while now, haven't we? Uh, And, yeah, we're getting there, aren't we? So, we're looking at 38 and 39. I'm going to read it for us. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog the chief prince of Meshach and Tabul, prophesy against him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tabul. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen fully armed and a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them, all with their shields and helmets. Also, Gomer with its troops, and Beth, Togarma from the far north with all its troops, the many nations with you. Get ready, be prepared, you and all the hordes gathered about you, and take command of them. After many days, you will be called to arms." In future years, you will invade a land that has recovered from war, whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They had been brought out from the nations, and now all of them live in safety. You and all your troops and the many nations with you will go up, advancing like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme. You will say, I will invade a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people, all of them living without walls and without gates and bars. I will plunder and loot and turn my hand against the resettled ruins and the people gathered from the nations, rich in livestock and goods, living at the centre of the land." Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all her villages will say to you, have you come to plunder? Have you gathered your hordes to loot, to carry off silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, and to seize much plunder? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, this is what the sovereign Lord says, in that day when my people Israel are living in safety, will you not take notice of it? You will come from your place in the far north, you and many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army. You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, Gog, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. I don't know about you, but I feel like I need God's help to preach this passage. So let me pray for us. Father God, uh, yeah, your word can be difficult and strange sometimes. And so, Lord, as we look at these two chapters in Ezekiel 
Uh, Father, we pray that you would speak to us, give us clarity as to what this means, help us to see Jesus in it, uh, help us to know how it applies to our life, we pray. Amen. Well, in the passage today, it's about someone called Gog from the land of Magog, but it's kind of tricky to pin down exactly who it's talking about uh, from kind of what we know at the time. It's not super clear who these people are, and we're not given a lot of information about them. In terms of what we have in the Bible, uh, there's a reference to a person called Magog in Genesis, and that same information is repeated in 1 Chronicles, Uh, but we're kind of unsure if that's actually a reference to this nation here. Uh, It could possibly be the nation of Libya, uh, but we're not entirely clear. But there is one other place in the Bible where Gog and Magog appears. Anyone want to hazard a guess as to where it is? Where's the other reference to these nations? Revelation. Good. Well done. Glad you know that. Uh, So in the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 8, I've got the passage for you on the screen. It says this. Uh, when the thou- I'll turn to it myself, actually. Revelation 20, if you've got your read Bibles, I think it's cool to look it up in real pages. That's just me. Revelation 20, uh, starting from uh, verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They were tormented day and night, forever and ever. Uh, What it's kind of saying there, right, is that Gog and Magog, they represent... Uh, They're representative nations of people that are hostile to God, God's enemies. Uh, And the book of Revelation has no problems with seeing these nations, nations that were in the Old Testament, as representative of something else. So, for example, if you know the book of Revelation, you'll know that in chapter 17, it talks about Babylon. And it isn't referring to a literal nation of Babylon, because they no longer exist, and it certainly doesn't exist as a woman that's presented there in chapter 17. So the Babylon that's presented in chapter 17 represents kind of people and organisational powers that are hostile to God, hostile to his plans and purposes, and in a similar way, that's what's going on with Gog and Magog there in chapter 20. They represent people that are hostile to God, that have aligned themselves with Satan. And the point for us as we read Revelation 20 is to help us to live in a world that has people that are enemies of God and therefore our enemies too. They're hostile to what God is doing in his world. And the answer there that God is going to give, that that God is going to rescue his people by eventually getting rid of everyone who's opposed to him and the devil is going to be cast away forever. God isn't going to let those hostile nations, hostile people uh, continue. Kind of as, as the picture there in Revelation 20, as the enemies surround God's people, 
God is going to save them by destroying the enemies. And the whole point of that passage is to give us courage to keep on going as God's people. Because we know that that is the future that God has in store for us. God is going to rescue and save us just as he's always done. He's going to get rid of everything that opposes his rule. And so for us, right, that should give us courage to keep on going. Now, as a kind of preacher, right, it's dangerous to tell people the whole point of your sermon uh, in the first kind of couple of minutes uh, because it gives you no incentive to listen to the rest of it, right? Uh, But that's kind of what I've done. But here's the thing, though. How we get to that end point matters just as much as how we get there, right? That we get there is important, but how we get, it matter, how we get there also matters. Uh, the journey matters just as much as the destination, and that's the key to kind of good Bible interpretation. You know, we don't just do kind of a word search for the word Gog and jump straight from Ezekiel to Revelation. No, we can do better, and in fact, we must do better Because nothing that I've said so far has been untrue, hopefully. Uh, But here's here's the kind of principle at play. If we turn something that's half true into a whole truth, then it actually becomes untrue. So have you ever acted on information that hasn't been quite complete? Have you ever done that? I just this week, I was chatting to someone, they wanted some advice about a situation, uh, and so I, I did my best to kind of help them out, we chatted about it, I gave them my advice. Towards the end of the conversation, I said, look, why don't we just go have a chat to Glenn, uh, he's a wise person, kind of knows more than me, let's have a chat to him, see what he thinks. Now, it turns out, he actually had the whole truth. He knew about the situation, he knew all of it, all I had was a small little piece. Uh, And thankfully, because of what Glenn knew as well, we came up with some much better advice. See, when a half-truth is taken as the whole truth, it becomes untrue. And and that never goes well. And so what we're going to do is we're going to get to Revelation 20 and get to that kind of big idea, but we're going to do it in the right way. So let's begin. Uh, And we're going to begin thinking about the ancient text, uh, which is Ezekiel 38 and 39. We're going to think about the passage that we've got. As I said at the start, uh, Magog is most likely a reference to Libya, uh, but we can't know that for sure. But you can see there in verse 5 of chapter 38 that the the king or the prince, Gog, uh, he's the head of a coalition of forces who are going to come and invade Israel. Uh, And there's a number of of nations that are listed there in verses 5 and 6. And those nations, they come from the north of Israel, but also the south as well. Uh, They're nations that are far away from Israel. They're kind of on the very borders of Israel's kind of known world that they would have known about. And these nations, they've come to plunder and invade Israel. Israel, they've just returned from exile. This is a prophecy looking forward to the future. And it sees the time when Israel have returned from exile. They've returned to the land. Uh, They haven't quite got their wall repaired yet, but they're kind of there, and they're easy pickings. Look at verse 11 and 12. 
This is Gog. You will say, I will invade a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people, all of them living without walls and without gates and bars. I will plunder and loot and turn my hand against the resettled ruins and the people gathered from the nations, rich in livestock and goods, living at the centre of the land. Right? The, the people are unprotected, so it's easy pickings for them. But it's actually not going to be as easy as they think it will be, because God is going to protect his people. And it won't be Israel that will fall, it's going to be Gog and his armies. In fact, it's actually going to be a complete wipeout. Uh, it's, going to, it's going to take seven months to bury all the dead, and it's going to take seven years to use up all their weapons in their fires. See, pictured here, the, the defeat of Gog, pictured here is not a victory based on a minor technicality. It's not a victory where the winning team kind of narrowly snatches defeat from the claws, uh, sorry, narrowly snatches the win from, from defeat. It's a complete and utter defeat. It's a complete wipeout. So that's kind of what happens. That's the story. Uh, but what did it mean for the first audience? Ezekiel, at the time that he has this prophecy, he's speaking to people who are in exile. And so we need to ask, well, what does it mean for them? There's four things I think that it means for them. Firstly, for them it means that this was a judgment on the nations. Right? We've seen this before in Ezekiel chapters 25 to 32. God judges the nations for their rebellion against him. And so here, God is doing the same thing. God is drawing them out of their country in order to punish them. Like reeling in a fish, God is going to draw them to his people for judgments. Now look at verses 21 and 22. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I will execute judgment on him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones, and burning sulfur on him and on his troops and on the many nations with him. God is going to do what he's always done. God is going to judge these people for their sin because God doesn't show favoritism. The second thing that this means for them is that God will do this so that everyone will know that God is holy. See, no one can stand before a holy God. God will not let sin go unpunished. Because if God lets sin go unpunished, that compromises his holiness and his perfection. And God had dealt with the sin of Israel, right? God doesn't show favoritism. God had dealt with the sin of Israel. He'd sent them into exile and God doesn't have a double standard. If he did that to his own people, what does that mean for everyone else? And so as God judges Magog and the other nations with him, you're meant to see in that a picture of God maintaining his perfect holiness and righteousness, dealing with sin justly. And number three, it's meant to be an encouragement for them. Because although God had punished his people for their rebellion against him, he was still going to maintain his side of the covenant. He was going to maintain his side of the agreement. He would look after his people. 
See, even though a massive army was going to come knocking on their door, God was going to watch over them. And so at the end of chapter 39, we get this recital of God's plan to continue to bless and care for his people. And that is meant to be an encouragement for them. Even though things would look bad, God would still love them and care for them. And number four, God would stop the cycle of sin and judgment. See, what would happen, right, is the people would sin, God would bring judgment, and then he would restore them, and then they'd just go back to sinning again and again. And that's kind of what the first 24 chapters of this book has been about. It's about Israel's sin and God's judgment of them. And then we come to this part, or kind of the later chapters of Ezekiel, where it's all really good. It speaks about how Israel will be restored to the land, how they'll be brought back under the blessing of God, how they no longer have to fear their enemies, how they're going to be able to make vineyards and grow crops and do all of that stuff again. But here's the question, what's going to stop Israel from sinning again? Because we've seen the pattern before, sin, judgment, restoration, and then sin again. What's going to stop the cycle of sin and judgment? And the answer there is chapter 39, verse 29, the final verse, says, I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. God is going to break the cycle of sin and judgment because he's going to pour out his spirit. It's going to enable them to obey his commands. And what comes after this chapter is a picture, a vision of, of God restoring the temple. It's, it's just kind of utter blessing as God brings about the temple once again. And it's proof that God is done with judgment, that everything is now going to be okay. The cycle will not continue. The final kind of destruction of God's enemies is done and so what comes after is just all blessing. The cycle of sin and judgment is finished. And so for the original audience, this is a passage of hope. As scary as it's going to be, right, with a massive army knocking on your door, there's going to be hope and joy that things will get better. See, God is drawing these nations out for final judgment, and God is going to stop the cycle of sin and judgment, God is going to pour out blessing once again on his people. And so it's meant to encourage them, give them courage to keep on going. Well, we're almost there back to us, but there's one more step we need to make. We need to think about what this passage means in the light of Jesus. How does this passage point us forward to Jesus and find its fulfillment in him? And I think there's three themes that find their fulfillment in Christ. Firstly, in Jesus, our greatest enemies have been defeated. Right? Sin, death, and Satan, they've been done with. In bearing our sin and judgment, Jesus was defeating our enemies. And that leads to our second point, that the, in, Jesus, the, 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 in Jesus, he has been dealing with the process, that cycle of sin and judgment. Right? If Jesus faced the judgment of God for our sin on our behalf, then that means that the cycle of sin and judgment is broken because the judgment has already been paid for by him 
and the Spirit has been poured out so we can obey God. And so the cycle of sin and judgment is broken, and all that's left is blessing. And so thirdly, in the cross, we also see the theme of God's holiness. So God loves us so much that He longs to forgive us. But His holiness demands satisfaction. Right? If we're sinning against a holy God, then that sin has to be paid for in some way. God cannot let sin go unpunished. If God lets it go unpunished, it compromises His perfection and His holiness. And yet the cross is the way that God maintains His holiness and yet forgives us. In the cross, we see God's holiness and perfection. And they're, they're, they're kind of three themes that find their fulfillment in Christ. And here's where we finally get to think about what it means for us. And the first thing I think it means for us is that no enemy can separate us from the future that God has planned for us. Right? If, God, if Gog couldn't stop God from restoring his people in the book of Ezekiel, and if Satan and his cronies couldn't do it in Revelation 20, then nothing else can. Do you remember the end of Romans chapter 8? It's an awesome passage. It says this. It says, Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But sometimes that can be hard to believe, right? It can be hard to believe that God has our future secure. And that's kind of where the book of Revelation comes in. Because the book of Revelation is written for people who don't know when the end will come. See, if we knew that everything was going to finish up tomorrow, then it would be easy for us to endure, right? We can make it one more day, can't we? You know, for example, right? Imagine you've got kind of exams, you've got your exam period, you're at the start of that kind of three weeks of just kind of ongoing constant study, and you're like, man, how am I ever going to get through this? Right? You've got to just kind of push on through. But imagine, though, if you've got one exam left. It's the morning of your final exam. How easy is it to endure, to kind of just get through that final exam? See, if you knew that your exam was like just going to be over in a few hours, it'd be easy to keep on going, right? But see, that's not us. We don't know when the end will come. And so the book of Revelation is written for people who do not know when the end will come. It could be kind of months away, it could be years away, it could be centuries away. And so we need help to remember that God will protect his people, that the future is secure. And so even though Satan gathers his army together, even though Satan kind of surrounds God's people and it looks all grim, actually nothing really kind of happens. Do you notice that as we, as we read that passage in Revelation 20? It's kind of a non-event, right? It's all set for this massive battle, and then just kind of God just wipes them out, and that's it, and you just kind of keep on going. It's a non-event, right? Do you, remember, uh, do you remember the Lord of the Rings films, the second one, uh, The Two Towers? You've got that Battle of Helm's Deep, Right? Massive kind of battle. 
as the orcs are there against the, the keep, the, the kind of castle thing, if you're not familiar with castle terms, uh, they come against the keep, uh, and everyone's kind of defending it, and the whole battle is just kind of this backwards and forwards of like, who's going to win? Uh, they're, they're, the good guys completely outnumbered, and it, 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 for all money, it's bad, right? Backwards and forwards, you're unsure who's going to win until the morning that Gandalf appears with a whole bunch of extra troops and it's all good, right? And the good guys win. Well, it's not going to be like that, right? It's not like that at all. See, what's described is an absolute wipeout. It's a complete defeat. Before a shot can even be fired, God saves his people and Satan is cast aside, See, God will protect and restore his people. We have nothing to fear, right? In Christ, our future is secure. But how would you know? How would you know if you're not trusting God with the future? How would you know if you're not trusting that God will bring final salvation for his people? Well, I think there's two kind of tests we can apply here. I think, firstly, you know you're not kind of really sure if God's got it all covered, if you're worried about the future. See, are you worried about what's going to happen to Christians in the future? I know I am. I'm a pastor, and all that legislation that's being written, that's against me, right? I'm worried, but we need to remember that God's got it, right? Right? Our future is secure. As Romans 8 says, Can trouble or hardship or persecution separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? No. No, it can't. We don't need to be worried about the future because God's got it. Or the second test, perhaps you're worried that your sin will somehow disqualify you from God's kingdom. You ever thought about that? You know, you're kind of staying there before God and, you know, you're like, yep, I did all this stuff, went to church, prayed, read my Bible. And Jesus is like, oh, what about that? What about that thing? <laughs> you know, there's that haunting passage that Jesus says where he says, I never knew you. You know, we say, Lord, Lord, I did all this stuff for you. And he says, who are you? I don't even know you. You know, there's some, something in our past, something in our history, some sin that we're battling with. Perhaps that is going to make us miss out on the future that God has planned for his people. But the good news of Jesus, right, is that we don't need to be worried about that at all. The cycle of sin and judgment is broken, And just like in Ezekiel, right, after Revelation 20 comes a vision of the rebuilding of the new heavens and the new earth. And not even your sin can stop that from happening. Why? Because your judgment has been taken by Jesus. And so if judgment has been taken, all that's left is blessing. Our sin cannot stop us from the future that God has planned for his people. 
Right? In Christ, the cycle of sin and judgment is broken. God no longer hides his face from us. He has poured out his spirit and he is enabling us to obey him. See, the world out there, all those things out there, that can't stop us from the love of God in Christ. And our sin in here, that can't stop it either. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God will bring about the future that he has promised for his people. But does that mean that I can kind of keep on sinning without any consequences? Well, you remember Romans 6, chapter 1, says that, you know, if God is so loving and gracious that he'll always forgive my sin, then can I just keep on sinning? And that's what Romans 6, verse 1 is trying to answer. And in a sense, the answer is, well, kind of yes, actually. See, God is so loving and gracious that God will always forgive us. See, you can keep on sinning, but we won't. We won't because that is not who we are. That's what Romans 6 is about. It talks about how we have been given a new life, a new identity. And sin, well, sin belongs to our old identity, and that is not who we are. Uh, we've got this kid's book at home. It's about a dirty dinosaur who likes playing in the mud. Uh, and, and, you know, kind of the whole book is just about him, like, playing in the mud, as kids' books kind of go. And at the end of the book, he has a bath, and so he's all clean, he's all washed. And the final picture is him looking back longingly at the mud. And that's us. We've been cleaned, we've been washed, and so why would we go back to the dirty filth of sin? That is not who we are anymore. We've been given a new identity, and so that is what we live out. See, sin, death, and Satan, they still remain, but they do not reign. And one day, God is going to get rid of them completely and fully. Yes, we can go back to the muddy puddle, but the power of the Spirit means that we don't have to. And all of that should leave us with an intense longing for Jesus to return and do his final sweep through, for him to come and remove once and for all sin, death, and Satan. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus. Should also leave us with hope, hope for the future. Because our future is secure and nothing can stop it from coming. God has got it sorted. And the future that we have coming has actually already started now. In the resurrection of Jesus, the future has begun. And all we're waiting for is for it just to kind of come in all of its glory, uh, in all of its fullness. It's like when uh, early in the morning when you can see the darkness receding and you're just kind of waiting for the sun to rise. It's like when the party has already started and we're just waiting for the cake. Or it's like the night before Christmas or the night before your wedding. It's like when you've got one minute left on your final exam before three months of uni holidays. It's like when you're at the airport lounge about to leave on your holiday. See, what comes next is going to be amazing. 
and nothing can stop it. And that should give us hope and courage to keep on going. Let me pray. Father God, we pray that you would send the Lord Jesus quickly. Father, would you bring about the future which you have promised for your people. Lord, would you bring that quickly, we pray. We thank you that it is secure and sure. Help us to keep on going, we pray. Amen.